Good evening and welcome to another episode of Nigeria Politics Weekly. I apologize that I was away. We were away last week. Um, myself and Phoenix were both traveling in different locations on uh, business. But we're back and we're back stronger. Well, I hope anyway. Uh, we have one guest today. Our guest is Samuel. Samuel is a consultant with the International Budget Partnership. Now, the three topics we're all going to be discussing today are firstly, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and its impact on Nigeria. Secondly, we'll discuss the strike by the Academic Staff Union of Universities, the ASU strike. And thirdly, we'll discuss the recent presidential declaration by former Vice President Atiku Abubakar. Now, firstly, to Phoenix, welcome back from your travels. Now, this war in Ukraine, I know it seems like a distant battle uh, far away from Nigeria, but a number of people have indicated that just because we're far away, it doesn't mean the country won't be impacted. So, can you talk us through the issues? Why should Nigeria? all the way in West Africa be concerned about the war in Ukraine, Phoenix. Hi, Michael. Good to be back and good to have you back. Um, hope you had a, a, a good and productive trip. Um, hi, Atiku. Great to have you back and hello, listeners. Um, sorry, of course, uh, we missed being, being here uh, over the last couple of weeks, but uh, it's good to be back. Um, I think this is this is it is a, a very interesting question, um, and I've looked at it across a number of tangents because, of course, it is a topical issue now, and uh, various debates, various conversations. One is having WhatsApp groups with friends and associates and things like that. I think when I look at uh, the impact on Nigeria. Uh, the first place I, I want to start on is the humanitarian impact on Nigerians resident in, in, the, in the Ukraine. Um, I didn't even realize we had such a large community in the Ukraine, but of course, I've always known that Eastern Europe and particularly uh, the, the old Soviet Union and then Russia were places of choice for people to study. Uh, in fact, I had a relative who did study medicine uh, in Russia way back when. So um, uh, I didn't know that extended to Ukraine, but it's, it's interesting to find out. And so we've heard so much about um, Nigerian students in Ukraine who got caught up in this and, you know, trying to get, get out of there and some of the efforts that were being done um, by the government to support um, I think some of it was uh, admirable. I saw a video by Apike Dabiri that, you know, explained the four uh, border points that people would go to, provided contact numbers, you know. So I think, I think to, to, to an extent, I mean, the government has done some work. I mean, there's, there's always more to be done, so they, they need to go uh, continue to do that. So for me, that's the first place that that, that was of concern to me and I'm hoping that everyone is safe, that people have been able to get out and those who are still there are keeping safe and able to, to move out. I also hear that Air Peace or one of these airlines is also looking to evacuate people. So that for me is the major focus and 
asking the Nigerian government to do more and to do all it can to, to keep our people safe and, and, to, and to make sure that everyone who's a Nigerian there is accounted for. I think the second thing that then strikes me is, of course, it, I mean, we've seen the impact on, on, uh, on, on oil prices, um, given uh, Russia's place as a, as a major oil producing nation. And of course, once we start having war, the markets uh, react. Everyone goes into uh, a panic, and and we can see how that has driven oil prices up. Now, for Nigeria, that's that's somewhat of a positive. It's not as good as you'd like it to be because we're struggling from an oil production perspective. But that's been a problem we've been carrying for almost a decade now. So at least the bit that we, we can produce, we've seen the oil prices jump significantly. So that should add um, some revenue into the coffers, but it's a double-edged sword in the sense that as even though we're making more money from, from the sale of oil, we're also losing money from fuel subsidies that this government had the opportunity and the goodwill to remove and didn't remove. So we've, we've uh, we, 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 which means that the um, government's finances that have been in trouble before are in worse state. So for me, economically, there is the bittersweet news around that. I think the final point for me is, is where I would you know, pass it on is, is more around the, the, the um, geopolitical issues around it and and I take, I take the opportunity to call out um, Vladimir Putin for this despicable act. It is beyond the pale. It is wrong to have a nation invade another nation um, unprovoked with no justification as much as he likes to tell lies and spin tales about some uh, promise that was made that NATO would not advance and blah, 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 blah. I'm ready to get into that right now, but it is wrong. And, and I call that out. And for that, it concerns me that we're, we're, we're getting into a place where might seems to be right. And I then worry for, for Nigeria and say, where's our place uh, in the society, in, in the uh, Global Committee of Nations? Um, I mean, are we safe as a nation? How do we look upon this and see the increased threat that, you know, these major powers can wield this kind of, you know, um, capability to just decide that they want to invade a country and annex it and, and all of that. And people have come up with all sorts of arguments. People will point you to the West and, oh, this invasion here, the US went to Iraq, Yemen, they'll tell you all sorts of stuff. Everything has its own context. It is, for me, it is wrong for one country to go invade another country, especially if it's unprovoked, as we see in this particular issue. So for me, that creates uh, concern. Um, I look to the resolution that was passed, which, which had overwhelming support. And to my surprise, Nigeria voted in favor of the resolution. Now, if any, those who remember know that Nigeria has always had this non-alignment agenda. But it seems like we move firmly out of that. So that's another question mark around what, I mean, what was the thinking for Nigeria to, to do that? I was happy that they did because for me, 
it was the right thing to do to to call out that but as a country what is your foreign policy and what was the intent for doing that if we remember anyone who looks at the voting pattern will see that south africa abstained uh, entirely um some countries in the middle east like saudi arabia also has abstained rather than vote and show your hand so nigeria did vote and show its hand so the question then becomes for the government to explain its choice and why it decided to do that. And what does it mean for our relationship with Russia or even with China? You know, because we know that China and Russia, you know, they have a sort of like chummy relationship. And so, and with Nigeria, with all of our Chinese loans and with, you know, going to, I think we also benefited from, from the East when when the West and the US, for instance, refused to sell us arms during the, the during the Jonathan regime. So the question then becomes, is Nigeria swinging back to the West by aligning with those interests? And what does it mean for us going forward? And was this well thought through um, for, for the government to make that move? So a number of different things that I've played in my mind and uh, yeah, that's where I'm at. Thank you, Phoenix. Um, Samuel, Phoenix talked about the variety of issues that could be relevant to Nigeria. But what I want to pick up with you is the economy. He says we might be able to benefit from higher oil prices, but he's also talked about the uh, difficulties with oil production. So my question to you is, what has the Buhari government done to take advantage in terms of oil and gas, how we can maybe raise extra revenue because of this war? Has the Buhari government done anything to achieve that, Samuel? Well, thank you, Michael, and then um, thank you, Phoenix, again for the opportunity. Um, I, yeah, I think this is more of a complex um, question as to whether uh, the president had made maybe some strategic uh, policy shift as to how to benefit from the windfall that will follow uh, this trend. Uh, but before I come there, I think it's important to quickly lay mention that the economy of any nation is dependent on many variables, among which is the security of lives and property. Now, if you look at Nigeria, for instance, and you look at the bandits, and then you see a classical bandit, they have arms. Most of the arms they use are actually AK-47. I mean, in Africa, I think the estimate is like, we have close to 100 million AK-47 creating havoc across Africa. And the recent incursion around West Africa is strongly connected to the crisis in Libya, and then the proliferation of the weapons in, of course, within the Libra hemorrhage that are actually flow down to the West African coast. Now, this war, why people may look at it as if it was happening across Europe, but the truth is that different groups, I mean, it's gonna, wars are always longer boring. Forget the initial glitch that happens. My own fear is that will some of this weapon that Russia seems to be using will not find its way back to Africa and then by extension coming down 
to a already fragile state in Africa, including Nigeria. I think that's just my faith. But aside from that, uh, back to your question, Michael, yes, we'll see a short-term benefit from this whole crisis. And that explains why oil prices have been going up. Um, presently, we don't have too many crises happening in the Niger Delta, meaning that production seems to be, of course, within manageable trajectory. 2 million, 2.1 million barrels per day. So if you are doing that and you're selling crude oil at almost 114, 115, definitely you'll be getting a lot of petrol dollars flowing back into the country. Uh, yeah, but the question is that, what do you do with this money that is flowing into the country? Uh, how do you use these funds? I mean, historically, Nigeria had episodes where oil had risen, of course, above, above certain threshold, and then we'd not manage it well. In the 1970s, we failed to manage it. In the 1980s, remember, we failed to manage it during the Gulf, during the Gulf War. Uh, we had the same challenges also uh, during, I'll call it, during the 2007, 2009, 2009, that some state, government, some state governors actually, rather than save funds, we're actually calling for those funds to be spent. Now we have them in government, family in government. The question is that election is fast approaching. Are you sure they want to keep these funds, at least warehouse it in a particular place and wait for a new government, of course, to actually use the funds judiciously? Because again, the government of Wari has demonstrated repeatedly that it doesn't give value for money. Uh, so putting everything together, I will say, I think I'm afraid that we are going to follow, we are going to toe the line that we've always told. That's one. Two, I'm conscious of the fact that if this war extends, as experts seem to be predicting, some of the weapons could find its way to Africa and then by extension to Africa. And then the third part is also the legitimacy. I mean, the whole context of um, uh, what you call separatist group also finding their voice, even within this chaos. The truth is that the chances of them finding their voice is becoming very, 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 uh, very, very positive. And of course, I'm happy that the, that the Nigerian government took a stand against tyranny. They took a, a stand against the madness of Putin. And that's what any logical person should take which is actually very, very commendable. But aside from that, the question is that what is the government gonna do within the next five, 10 years and what strategies do they have to ensure that, of course, the little windfall we are getting now, we use it shortly, but more importantly, when the spoil of war start eating at Africa, what do we do to actually stop that from engulfing us? Thank you, Samuel. I just want to ask you a follow-up question. There's the issue of the fuel subsidy. So as the price of oil goes up, the amount we, we pay in subsidy also goes up. So does, do you think that's going to be a problem for Nigeria? Or, or do you think Buhari is going to have to remove the subsidy? Or what do you think is going to happen, Samuel? <laughs> so, so, Michael, it's simple. The president of Nigeria cannot, cannot remove subsidy this year. I think we said this repeatedly sometimes last year. It's an election year. You don't want to do that. Uh, politically, it will be suicidal for you to take that stand uh, because, again, the way the narrative around subsidy has been painted in Nigeria is as evil. That's the only benefit you get from government. And if they are taking it away from you, the government is bad. That's always been the narrative. 
And that narrative is not going to disappear. Remember, we started all this conversation in the 1970s. Now, why would the price of PMS go up when oil price is going up? It's simple. The variability, I mean, sorry, don't let me use these <laughs> complex terms. Naira itself, it's strongly anchored around petrodollars. The more petrodollars that flow into the country, that's where the Naira gets its strength from. Given the fact that petrodollars happens to be the riding, of course, the biggest predominant foreign exchange, I mean, any, the source of foreign exchange in Nigeria. So when oil price goes up, yes, we are going to spend more importing PMS. And it, in effect, it means that the dollar that we are getting, we are most likely going to hand it over, at least substantial amount of it, we are going to hand it over to people bringing in crude oil. Now, the question is that when it comes in, and by the time you convert to Naira, um, I mean, let me just explain it this way, I think for clarity. Imagine I am the sole importer of PMS in Nigeria, and I go ahead to import PMS. To import PMS, I need dollars. I go, okay, I get dollars from the central bank, I go and import PMS, and I start selling it to Nigerians, irrespective of the price I sell it. The point is that I want to get my dollar back from the Nigerian government. So by design or by this thing, I get my dollar back. And when I get my dollar back, if there's a shortfall, of course, I'm going to create scarcity. I'm going to make things unbearable for people until government bulges. And then they hand me back my money. I go, I keep around tricking. In fact, the point is instead to mention that this subsidy issue has been with us for long. Now, the second question is that if oil price goes down, the value of the Naira suddenly becomes shifts. Government tends to devalue. Remember, the primary occupation of the Nigerian government, especially the federal government and the state government as, as well, is number one, to meet their recurrent expenditure obligations. They want to pay salaries, they want to service debts, which are predominantly Naira. So they will typically readjust the value of the Naira to meet any domestic, again, Naira-dominated uh, expenditure. And so, whether we like it or not, because we are getting little dollars flowing into the country, they typically would devalue the currency to actually meet up with that, I mean, with that, um, how would I call it now? <laughs> with the local demand itself. I mean, you convert, just imagine yourself getting $1 initially and you are converting it to 200 naira. If you devalue to 300 naira, rather than make 200 naira, you are not making 300 naira to meet domestic obligation. That has been the trajectory that Nigerian government have, have taken. So the point I'm just trying to make here is that with microeconomic management by Nigerian government that put us in this peculiar situation, and it's not going to go away anytime soon. Forget about the fact that they're saying Dangote's refinery is coming, ABC is coming, all those ones are fixed. Until the Nigerian government is brave enough to take away subsidy. And just for context, I mean, it's important for me to mention this that we have a full department, buildings, skyscrapers, everything, set up just to calculate the price of oil. That's how inefficient the government of Nigeria is. Now, how do you take out subsidy? If you take out subsidy, it means that you are destroying all those infrastructure. In fact, the people that are riding on this subsidy regime, the people that are benefiting from this subsidy regime, they're in excess of 50,000 strong men in this country. So the moment you take out subsidy, the truth is that you are taking them out of business. You are killing a particular sector of people, and those people will fight to turn it to make ensure that never happens. The second point I want to make is that 
if peradventure Phoenix is able to get license to bring in PMS into this country, and Phoenix brings in the PMS into this country and empty every, everything inside the river, government of Nigeria will still pay in subsidy for that because there's no tracking mechanism. The, over, the oversight system is so weak, and that explains why adulterated fuel will flow into the country, enter into the pipeline system, get distributed, destroy some couple of cars before people will know. That's how porous Nigerians' system is now. So my take here is that well, I'm not going to, the government of Nigeria is not going to remove subsidy this year. They had the opportunity of doing that in 2016. They did not. They had the opportunity in 2017. They did not. It's impossible for you to do it in 2018 because the election was 2019. They had the opportunity of doing the same thing in 2020 during COVID. Remember, during COVID, the price of PMS, everything collapsed because global demand for transportation had gone down. They did not. In 2001, they did not. In 2002, a year after election, they announced started talking about, we know it's not going to happen. So if anybody is going to remove subsidy, we should be looking at maybe 2023 after the election or 2024, if the new government is strong enough to take that decision. But the truth is that we failed repeatedly since when to do this. And until we take this decision, this hardline decision to cut off this um, unnecessary subsidy that we pay that has absolutely no bearing on the livelihood of people. It has no impact on the working poor. It has no impact on the have-nots. Until we take that stand, we continue to have this system where that benefits a very few people and leave the majority of people in poverty and, and impoverish the majority of people. Thank you, Samuel. From what you're describing, we're basically going to make money of the one hand from high oil prices, but basically give it away in fuel subsidies. Now to Phoenix, um, there's one further question I want to ask because it's been said and a number of reports have said that Russia and Ukraine are the two key exporters of wheat and grain. And today in the news, it was reported that Ukraine is restricting their exports of wheat uh, to ensure that they have sufficient supplies at home. Now, if, if that happens, the price of wheat is going to increase internationally. Would that be a problem for Nigeria? Is Nigeria a wheat-consuming cons nation? Phoenix? Yes. Um, yes, indeed. I mean, the commodity prices are, are up all around, us, as, as, as we mentioned earlier, and uh, Atuku has, has online. Um, last I checked, I think the, the price of wheat has increased already by more than 50%, if I remember correctly. I remember seeing some numbers to that effect um, and, uh, and, and hitting record highs. Yes, Nigeria is a, a consumer of, of wheat. It goes into, into a number of places, primarily into the production of flour, which and, and we are we are a heavy bread consuming nation, so there, there is the impact there. Uh, and, and so it will, it will create um, uh, significant uh, issues, issues for us. But if I remember correctly, maybe Atiku can correct me if I'm wrong, I think there was some action against wheat importation recently. And maybe, I mean, we will go back to some of the import substitution talk that has been happening. I remember on that good luck Jonathan's time, there was a discussion around cassava flour to, 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 
to make bread or something like that. Uh, and so to answer your question, yes, this crisis and this reduction um, which comes as a result of war. And whenever you have war, there's always scarcity of, of, of goods and services because people are afraid to go to their farms or to um, participate in that activity. And of course, it will affect um, the um, amount available for supply, will drive prices up, and Nigeria will, will struggle to get this in. And so the government needs or needs to be thinking about, okay, so what, what's next? Are there other sources? And if Nigeria is heavily dependent on Ukraine and Russia, are there other sources? Is there none? What can we do internally um, to brace ourselves to close that gap? But indeed, it, it will be a challenge uh, for, for us. Thank you, Phoenix. Uh, let's just hope Nigeria somehow finds a solution because uh, it'd be quite worrying if bread, which is one of the staples, uh, the cost of it uh, goes out of hand. But on to our next topic, the ASU strike, i.e. the Academic Staff Union of Universities have been on strike now for a number of weeks. But what is not clear to me, Phoenix, and perhaps some of our listeners is what, what exactly is the issue? Why is ASU on or ASU? Why are they on strike again, Phoenix? Well, they're on strike because the government has acted in bad faith. Um, so the genesis of the issue is there was an agreement in two thousand and nine on uh, on the salary structure for for ASU members, and it was as part of that agreement, which I've not seen the government deny, this was supposed to be reviewed every five years. And of course, what has happened is that since that 2009, nobody has revisited that agreement and there has been no progression in the pay levels uh, for the people. Now, bear in mind that Nigeria is a high inflation country at best of times. We had high single digits, at least in the last seven years, we know we've had mid to high double digits. So think about it over a space of 12 going on 13 years, um, there has been no, there has been a, a significant erosion in the purchasing power of of this um, uh, of this um, lecturers and people who, who are members of the of ASU. ASU I mean, to for our listeners, means academic uh, the academic staff union of universities, so people who teach um, in in the universities. Um, I think, I mean, so that's the genesis of it. But what has happened is that they, they went on strike in 2020 and they reached a, an agreement to suspend the strike. And the government was supposed to respond. I mean, they'll go through several negotiations uh, to arrive at a at at point, but it seemed like uh, nothing was done. And so as we decided to, to go on strike again, February 2022, and that's where they are at the moment. The government says it has, as it is one to do, set up a committee to look into it and advise it on what it will, what it's supposed to do. I mean, why it took them this long to set up a committee and why it takes them this long to simply go back to whatever agreement was signed at that point in time and see what they need to, what they can do or can't do is beyond me, but um, it does create a, 
a very difficult situation um, for for the students. And and you know we already complain about uh, the the dwindling quality of education in Nigeria. Incessant strikes do not help at all. So for me, it is one that the government needs to step step up and uh, you know make sure that they play their part to get to a resolution so that this strike can be pulled off. Thank you, Phoenix. Um, Samuel, the, the number of young Nigerians, obviously there's thousands or maybe even millions of young Nigerians in public universities, and they're out of school because of this strike. Yet, it's been said that, or we've just been told that uh, President Buhari is in London on, a, I think, a two-week medical vacation. Is this is is that the right thing for him to do to go on vacation whilst Nigerian students are not not in school or university? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a that's a very uh, well. I I think the last information I had was like he was revisiting his plans to go on medical trip abroad, and then maybe return to Nigeria. But that said. I think for ASU, I, I know we get emotional about these issues. The truth is that the constitution of Nigeria gives you right to free expression, association, assemblies, among others. And one of the ways to express your right to free expression, sorry about my use of English there, is actually the withdrawal of labor. Nobody's a slave in the country. So if we presume that the condition of service does not align with you as a person or as an association, you have rights to down tools. That is the truth. Now, when you down tool, it shows clearly and it signals to the entire world that negotiation had failed. It's not the other way around. You have been negotiating with government repeatedly about certain issues. But because that negotiation breaks down, you down tools just to enforce an hazard pressure on those people that presume, I mean, they presumably have more powers than you do. The only power you can use as worker is actually to down tools to withdraw your labor. That's essentially what ASU has done. So for me personally, if I were a member of ASU, I would have aligned also with what ASU is doing. Notwithstanding the fact that it affects 8 million. I mean, okay, ASU, we are talking about, we are talking about roughly six, four to six million Nigerian young people that should be in the university. That said, what should be the disposition of the president towards these issues? I think it's clear for everybody to see that, I mean, about some few weeks ago in the UK, some associations of um, lecturers decided to down to, but look at the response of the university system to address that issue. How did they move? How did they quickly address that issue? And what had been the reaction of the Nigerian government? And just for context, so people don't assume that, oh, this old man, you are out of school, this thing doesn't affect you. When I got into university, I attended the Nigerian university myself, and I spent at least the first year Remember, during the Obasanjo era, 
my first year was actually spent sitting at home doing absolutely nothing because there was this long strike. So I also beared the brunt and I know how this thing actually ought. Last two years, 2020, remember, during the lockdown and everything that was happening, there was a strike. It took NSAS and the gathering of Nigerian students for government and to be forced into action. People should remember and recall that what forced the government to respond to ASU was the impending effect of NSAS, which they presumed and they assumed was being led by Nigerian young people that were at home. So they presumed, I mean, they had, the strategy was simple, get them back to school and then maybe you could actually end this uh, protest. Um, uh, when that did not work, of course, they had to use guns and bullets to keep people and they tried to hide uh, what happened at Lekki to get among other places. But my take here is that if the president is actually serious about the education system, if he's serious about the need, remember, uh, in many of our states were struggling uh, to actually fit certain types of um, essential workers in spaces, because as people are leaving the country, we're opening up gaps, like uh, medical workers and all those kinds of people. If the government is sincere about the need to actually lower maternal mortality rate, lower infant mortality rate, put more medical people uh, to work in the villages across board, of course, they will take education serious. If they are serious about building a knowledge-powered economy that they wrote in their development plan, they will look closely at the university system and try to align, of course, try to do everything humanly possible to ensure that what is happening in that sector becomes the priority of government. And that said also, I think on the other high of the thing also, it's also important to look closely at the university system and the structure for which it's built. If you look at a classical Nigerian university system, they do not publish any financial statements. The, the opacity in which they operate is ridiculous. Uh, the uh, chancellor, the vice chancellor is seen as a Lord Commander that dictates and everybody bows to him. It's, a, it's an aberration just looking at the best system itself. So my take here is simple. Why we have strong union actually fighting for better lives for themselves, I think we need a system overall of the Nigerian education, especially for tertiary education, which is actually the power. It's actually in the hand of the federal government. If you look at closely at the constitution, the person that is responsible for driving tertiary education in Nigeria today remains the federal government. And that explains why when people leave the university system, there's always this skills needs mismatch. The kind of knowledge you gain from the university system in Nigeria today does not even align with what the industry needs. And so we need a total overload of that system. That said also, I think before I close, sorry for dressing this, it's also important to look closely at the number of people sitting for jam. I wonder how it makes sense for us to have 2 million people sitting for jam every year, the university system will only absorb maybe 200, 300,000 out of them. So you have roughly about 1.7 million people left out. And then you have over 100,000 people with master's degree and PhD. If you look at the MBS statistics, unemployed. How do you think, how do we actually put things together in this country? And if you ask, run a quick survey of the people that are looking to enter into university, some of them can actually afford to pay for tuition 
pay at least to a degree, maybe 200,000, 300,000 to actually get a good education. The question is that. So generally, my take here is that the entire education system in Nigeria is in a big, I'll call it is a big basket. And when you are in a basket, you know, certainly a lot of things has been good. I mean, everything seems to be draining out of you. And I hope that it doesn't get dry before we start rescuing what is left of the Nigerian education system. Thank you, Samuel. Um, Phoenix, Samuel has highlighted the problem and has talked about the fact that the university system needs to be overhauled. Of all the politicians you've heard speak or discuss their plans for 2023, has there been any candidate who has given you the impression that he seems to have a plan to address the university education crisis, Phoenix? I'm trying to think of those who have thrown their hats in the ring. Um, I think of the ones that, that have really thrown their hats in the ring, it's uh, it's uh, Professor Kingsley Mongali that I think has, has articulated a plan uh, that I believe makes sense um, um, on education. The other person, I won't say he has thrown his hat in the ring, but we expect him to, I expect him to, is uh, Peter Obi, because I've seen in his, uh, in his time as governor of Anambra State, his focus on education and how he turned things around there. And by the time he left, you know, Anambra State was having the best results in it was it Wayek or or Jam, I can't remember. So he clearly has a track record of focusing on education and turning things around. I think uh, in as much, and I think we'll talk about him next, in as much as uh, I do not have time for Atiku's candidacy, we also know that he places a great uh, focus on education uh, because he talked about it the last time around. And we know that he, he actually runs a, a university. So he should, there should be some learnings that he can bring in there. Um, and I look at the others, I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced. Because again, you need to have a proper plan. Um, education is not something that you just throw money at. You need, to, it's a, you need to have a clear strategy. I mean, how do we want to address it? How, what, should, should, it be, should it be publicly owned and funded or should it be should it be a, a public private partnership that's a, that's a key question that Nigeria has not answered we, we we like building universities and schools and blah 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 but not thinking about how do, how do you make them run properly run efficiently be able to provide the services uh, that the people require but we don't think about that it's also part of this um statist mentality uh, that we have that we try to that has dumbed down the um higher education um tertiary education offering in the country where you see um people see it as part of the dividends of of being nigerian that they, they should go to school for free or pay next to nothing and and i think that has not helped as well so there needs to be a clear strategy as to what is our focus? What should be, what should be, how should education be treated in Nigeria? I believe very strongly that the 
education out to secondary school should be free for everyone. But beyond that, it needs to be, in my view, we need to have a, a system that provides, uh, be it scholarships, be it loans, but it should not be free at, at the tertiary level if you want to get good quality education and set up people to go into the workplace and truly add value. So there needs to be a discussion around what's the right thing to do. Um, and and only, only a few are showing, like I said, but uh, we, we need, we need uh, whoever is looking to throw their hat in the ring to, to really show us that they're, they're thinking about this strategically and, and looking for optimal solutions to drive this forward. Thank you, Phoenix. I'm just going to ask a quick follow-up question to that. There's been some debate on social media about perhaps privatizing the universities so that, that, so that the government literally has no say and just maybe sell them to businessmen or educational consortiums. Uh, would, would that be an option you would be interested in pursuing? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think, I, think the I think you can have a hybrid solution. I think there's nothing stopping the government from having, if, if you decide to have six and say we have six geopolitical zones, the, the government would only keep six universities and raise them to the highest level possible, privatize the, the, the others, but have strong regulation. So you still want it to be managed like a public good. You don't want people to be extorted and all of that. Um, but clearly the government cannot run higher education to the level that it needs to be run. And because it's also seen as government, people expect that they should be allowed to, to enjoy it for free. Just, and Nigerians have grown, have, have had that mentality, it goes back to the point that Atiku was making around fuel subsidy as well. People see some of these things as national cake that they can enjoy. But we're not going to move forward as a nation if people see education as something that is part of the national cake. We need to raise the level. We need to bring in the right investment. And for me, yes, privatization is a way to go, but you can create six citadels of learning of the, of the highest level that get funding from, partial funding from government uh, in form of grants or whatever. And those become like your, your standards while the remainder privatize. Just an idea, but for me, yes. Privatization is something that I would definitely support. Thank you, uh, Phoenix. Uh, time is up, but uh, it's been an interesting debate on university education. But to our final topic, Vice President Atiku Abubakar, who was former uh, Vice President to Olushego Basanjo during the 1999-2007 presidency, has once again declared his interest. Uh, he made this known to a group of PDP legislators with whom he was meeting. So I'll circle back to you, Phoenix. Are you excited that Atiku has thrown his hat in the ring? I think we've talked about this and I, I made my view clear and I'll reiterate it. No, I'm not excited. Um, I was hoping that he would be a, a, a true statesman and throw his weights behind uh, somebody else. Um, uh, with, at least within the PDP today, I would have expected that his running mate the last time is the one that 
he would support and put forward. Um, and I've said this before, my, my view is Nigeria needs to, Nigeria needs to rotate the presidency to make sure that for, at least for now, while we are still building this democracy to make sure that every, everybody feels a part of this nation. We've had too much division. We've had uh, a civil war and all of that. And beyond that, after that civil war, we still have some people who hold on to those uh, grudges along et ethnic lines. And until we can show that, you know, everybody in Nigeria is a Nigerian and has the right to aspire to, to, to office, and the only way you can make that happen now, because we already have a constitution that, that doesn't enable that. We already have a structure that has already um, um, created inequality. When I look at the southeastern part of Nigeria having only five states, and I mean, and, we, and, and they are one, uh, you know, one zone, and then you, you look at every, every other place, it's, it's always going to be there's going to, always going to be an imbalance there. So for me, having in the 20 or going on in the, going on 23 years that we've had the democracy, we've, we've had presidents from, from, from the north, from the south. We have a current president now who's run, who's completing eight years. So in my view, he should come to the south. And when he comes to the south, the southeast is the only zone that hasn't had a president. So I would, I, my, my view is the presidency should go to the southeast. And particularly for the PDP, a party that has zoning as part of its um, constitution, that, that's, that's, the minimum, that's the minimum that I expect. So when an, when an article throws his hat into the ring, it models the waters for me. I mean, because he should, he should accept to be bound by that one constitution and then as an elder statesman, he should support somebody else. But obviously his ambition is too important for him. And so I'm not excited. Um, as I said before, if, if PDP hands in the ticket, they should expect to lose. And, and from that loss, I, ex I expect that that party will be dealt such a significant blow that they, they, I don't think they will win any national election going forward. I think they, they, they need to come as a counterpoint to the APC. Uh, the APC has failed woefully, um, which provides the opportunity to the opposition to step up, you know, but step up in a way that doesn't betray your principles. Step up in a way that people can rally behind you. Step up in a way that you, prove, you bring forth a front runner that, you know, will address the yearnings of the people. And you have those kind of people in your party. Peter B for me should be, I mean, they should all be rallying behind him because he's the, within the PDP is the pick of the bunch. And he will address some of those concerns that people have. He has a proven track record. I would rather be prompting for him within the PDP and saying that that's who they should push for. But if, yeah, I mean, I think he's free, he's entitled to, to run. So, He's, and he's, uh, he's uh, how would I put it? He's, he's, um, he's uh, I mean, he has a right to do so, and he's, he's working on that basis. So, but no, it fills me with no excitement. And uh, yeah, we'll see how, how it all goes. Thank you, Phoenix. You're clearly not uh, excited about Atiku's candidacy. But to Samuel, isn't there the argument that 
Atiku has thrown his hat in the ring. The Peter B, who people are saying should become president, appears reluctant to do so. So why should Atiku be penalized when no serious contenders from the South are throwing their hat in the ring for the PDP's tickets? Uh, Samuel? Uh, I think it's important. <laughs> yeah, again, I think just to uh, build on what Phoenix has actually said, in Nigeria, you elect presidents into government. You don't vote people out. I think there's this mentality around, oh, we want to displace APC. That is why we need to present a Northern candidate. I mean, let's take a pause a little bit and go back to 2007. The election of 2007 had two main candidates, Umaru Yaradua and Muhammadu Buhari. Buhari had about 6.6 million votes. Yaradua had about 24 million. Of course, Yaradua himself admitted that that election was actually do not meet the high test nor the integrity test. And you proceed to institute certain things uh, to correct the electoral system. In 2011, Buhari himself contested elections against Jonathan. Jonathan had the people of Nigeria, again, remember, because of Yaradua's ailment and all those kind of things, there was this big talk around, oh, they've been so. Just to put so that I don't dwell too much on the politics, I'm sure everybody understands what happened around 2010, 2011. Donatan won the election with 22 million votes compared to Buhari's 12 million, more than 50% in terms of um, the spread. What led to this? It's important to mention that Jonathan did not win any states in the core Northwest or the core Northeast. He simply played his politics around winning the Southern vote in blocks, ensure that turnover was higher. And then the percentage of vote I won was actually significant. Of course, it went down to the Middle Belt, the Middle Belt region, one in Plateau, one in Taraba, one in some of those Middle Belt states, and ride on that, ensure that the gap that I was using to lead was higher, and ensure that it actually actually took, I mean, in some state in the north, which is classic, Kaduna, Southern Kaduna, people will always align with this and all those kind of things. And it won't convince me. But there's this mentality that people in PDP young people in PDP seems to be selling that you need one court following in the North to actually win election. Remember, Nigeria's election since 1999 to date, I did not count 1999 because 1999 was an election between, uh, I'll call it the two Southerners, Obasanjo and then Falaye, and the election was fairly contested. But if you go to 2003, election in this country had been contested repeatedly between a candidate from the North against the South. And at, it was only in 2015 that a candidate from the North actually have an edge over a candidate from the South. That given, it needs to be said. Now, the question is that if you go back to 2011, 
What was the disposition of Atiku himself? Atiku said repeatedly that Jonathan was wrong to contest the election in 2011. And because of that, remember he contested the party primaries against Jonathan and he lost. Because of that, he left the party and collude with the disastrous government of Buhari. Of course, the government that we have today was actually instrumental in bringing this disastrous government to power. The question is, this same man is now putting his head up, saying that, oh, we need to remove this disastrous government. Now he's presenting himself. That's an aberration. It doesn't make sense to me. Clearly, Atiku had missed his way. And people should tell him, the, in fact, I'm waiting for PDP to hand him the ticket. And then I think they will learn one or two things about Nigeria and the context of that you cannot, people think in Nigeria that logic plays its course. At no point in this country has logic played any course. This country rides heavily on religion, rides so much on ethnicity. In fact, decision-making in this country is driven more by ethnicity and religion than by logic. So all of a sudden, PDP is now anchoring and thinking that logic, bringing a Northern candidate after the North had ruled Nigeria, run Nigeria for eight years, another Northerner <laughs> will get into power. I think that would be strange. I'm waiting to see how that will happen in this country and what will be the resulting effect of that. I shake my head just to also reiterate that PDP, as a, as a party, have only four northern states, right? As governors, right? The big, the core component. I mean, if you look closely at PDP, where they've sustained their political stronghold for decades, had been from the south south and from the southeast. Forgetting about all these big talks that happen, the southeast and the south south are, are the biggest voting bloc for the PDP. Now I'm waiting to see what the PDP will do, jettisoning that region entirely and going to pick a Northern and assuming that the market, the trader in Onisha market, or the person trading in Bodija market, in, or somebody will now say, oh, yeah, it's Buari that is the person, it's a person problem, it's not an ethnicity problem, it's not this one. I shake my head because of that. Now. That's, that said, I think it's also important to look at the context of what's playing in Nigeria. There's this big noise, of course, it seems to be quelling down slightly now around Biafra, around the Dudua Republic. Some people are shouting in the middle, but what is fueling the sentiment? The context is simple, that there seems to be division in Nigeria, that the, that the government of Buhari has not been inclusive enough. Then the PDP, understanding that context, we now align with an Atiku's presidency and say, okay, we need another Northern candidate to come and address this challenge. I think that would be, that would be the biggest joke in 2020, I mean, 2023. I don't see how PDP would be sensible enough to actually allow Atiku, and Atiku himself should understand this better because he has been at the, for, he has been at the forefront of pushing for a more egalitarian society that we should build together. It's just quite unfortunate that APC will most likely be having a very easy ride. I know Michael has said this repeatedly, that there's no way APC will not win this election. I think PDP is even making it easier for people to make choices, especially riding on ethnicity. I just imagine 
uh, APC bringing a southern candidate against an Atiku Abubakar from the north. And what do you think will happen? People assume that Atiku will win votes in the north. I doubt it even. Self. I don't think Atiku will win Kanu. I don't think Atiku will win Kaduna because he has never won it. He has no following in those spaces. So why would you suddenly assume that he was going to win it tomorrow? If PDP is even aligning with a Kwankwasu or something, I would say, okay, maybe they have some thinking around this. But Atiku that has actually not commanded any respect in the North, among the Northern elite itself, and then, of course, the grassroots and all those kind, all of a sudden becomes the champion. Let me pause here and then allow, allow other people to talk about this issue. Thank you, uh, Samuel. Seems you yourself and Phoenix are on the same page uh, with regards to Atiku's candidacy. But Phoenix, let me press you on this. So, so are you saying if, for example, the PDP picks an Atiku and the APC picks, I don't know, Erotimi Amechi, for example, you wouldn't assess the competence of the candidates, but rather you would just vote or abstain because you're protesting the PDP's decision? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Um, that's what I'm saying. I, I think, yes, indeed, elections should be about uh, the choices that are put before you, and, and you should choose uh, among those, um, the one that best fits your, your what, what you're looking for among those choices. So if, if the PDP were to put up an article versus and Amechi, I will look beyond both and and vote for for somebody else. But I will not. I would. I, I, I cannot in 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 all good conscience uh, support a, a vote for a northern candidate in the twenty twenty three elections. It makes no sense to me. If people can say what I am. I am one thousand percent behind meritocracy. So yes, I do not want us to be in a position where we are electing people based on what part of the country they're in. But we're still in that stage of our democracy where, for me, equity and justice trumps any of those things for now. Let us at least make it to a place where we've, we've given everybody an opportunity. We've shown that, yes, we're committed to this Nigeria project and not on the altar of expediency. You start, you know, doing that kind of stuff. So for me, there's no way. There's no way I will I will vote for a northern candidate from any party in, in 2023. It has to be from the south. And for me, it has to be from the southeast. And so if, if the APC puts up Rotimi Amechi, because I've also said there's no way I will vote for an APC candidate. I think the only way I can vote for an APC candidate is, is, is if for some reason they get someone like Ngozi Okunjewela. I'll vote for her any day, even if she doesn't have party. So if she shows up and says, yes, APC has given me a free reign and I'm basically applied there. That's the only way I will vote. I will vote for an APC candidate. As far as I'm concerned, that party has destroyed Nigeria over the last seven years. They should not be rewarded for that failure. They should be cast aside. So it means that PDP has a chance. But if PDP then decides that they want to go and bring another app, they will not get my vote. I will then go for my next best option which is uh, Kingsley Mogalu, who I think is a good option. But, you know, last time around, I voted on the altar of expediency. I voted for, I, I mean, Atikua was the one I supported and all of that because I believe that he stood the most, PDP stood the most chance to take Buhari out. But Buhari is not on, on the ballot. 
the North has had eight years. It's time for the South. And so they should do the right thing and, uh, you know, put the right candidate in front of us. Thank you, uh, Phoenix. Let me put the last question to Samuel. Samuel, are you also telling me that if the choice is between Rotimi Amechi of the APC and Atiku Abubakar, you either abstain or vote for Rotimi Amechi? Is that what you are saying, Samuel? The choice is between Atiku Abubakar uh, and the devil. I would rather abstain. That's how worse it is. You can, I, of course, that's one. Two, Amechi, I've said it repeatedly that anyone that served under the um, Buhari's government, I will never, I will never vote. In fact, if you are just a photographer taking pictures of Buhari himself, sitting and then putting toothpick in his mouth, and you decide to run elections, maybe in 50 years' time. As long as I can connect you to Buari, I will never vote for that person because I can't understand how somebody will destroy 23 million jobs. I cannot understand that. That's the metric for which this government has been a disaster. I think that needs to be said. Two, so I mean, Amechi is out of the picture. Atikwa, I have always struggled with someone that does not have a stand. I mean, you should be known for something. If you had come out publicly to actually condemn Jonathan and say, oh, Jonathan, why are you contesting election? This is the time of the North. Then definitely you should have that same understanding now. And using that same logic, it should apply today. So I cannot vote for Mechi. I can never vote for Tiku if he's contesting election in 2023 meaning that I need to go with other candidates. And who are the other candidates, of course, I need to look. Personally, I've also said it, and I've said it publicly, that any candidate that comes from the southeastern part of this country that can articulate his agenda, no matter if it's just one person that will vote for the person, I'm sure I'm that one person. That's how principled I, I am about this issue. I presume and I believe if we want to have a united country, if we are thinking about having a united Nigeria, power should go to the southeastern part of this country. And any candidate that presents himself, of course, when I say any candidate, I don't mean people like Oji Uzokalu, a criminal. I know maybe I don't call him a criminal. Maybe the Supreme Court had actually obtained that. I mean somebody that is reasonable. Somebody, and I can mention names. I mean, you have Frankie Wiki Jr., you have Okonjo Ewela, you have Peter Obi, I can go on and on. You have Charles Oludo. You can bring any candidate up from the southeastern part of this country. Call the party any name. That's the person I'm voting for. I think that's my take on this issue. Thank you, Samuel. It seems... Uh, so, Michael, you don't get to do chairman only on this particular topic. What's, what's your view? <laughs> with the listeners. <laughs> well, I think I, I'm more pragmatic. I've been very critical of, of Atiku because of, obviously, his hypocritical stance, claiming that it was the North's turn in 2015 and now, now seeming to argue that zoning should not matter. However, I think I will take a more pragmatic view. So if the choice is between Atiku and Hirotimi Amechi, I will vote for an article because I think 
whilst in the primary stage we can make all these arguments, the reality is it is the future of Nigerians that will be at stake in 2023. So if we abstain or vote for candidates like Mogalu who cannot win, then the consequences will be borne by the youth of this country who would probably suffer another eight years of slow growth. So whilst I don't think Atiku should run, if he's on the ballot, I think he's far better than anybody that the APC has to offer. So I will go with an Atiku. But anyway, our time is up. So I must first of all, thank you, Samuel, for taking time out to be here. And thank you, Phoenix, for co-hosting this podcast with me. And finally, thank you to all our listeners for being helpful and giving us loyal feedback all the time. So until same time next week, I say have a fantastic seven days to everyone. Thanks, Michael, and uh, thanks, Atiku, for joining us. Um, and thank you, listeners, for, for, for always being there. Have a great week, everyone.